be together, for us to fellowship together and have conversations about our life and about you. It's been a wonderful morning to turn to your word in uh, Sunday school and in in Bible study, and it's been a great morning just to hear of what you're doing in uh, Zach and Sydney's life and in uh, their local church in Terre Haute and literally all across this globe. Um, The gospel is advancing. The name of Jesus is being made much of, and people are coming to faith in the true gospel of reconciliation with you and forgiveness of sins completely a work of your grace, completely received by faith and faith alone. And salvation uh, is, bring, is being brought in your name. And we're so grateful for that. Father, we're grateful now that we can turn to your inspired word, your trustworthy word, your altogether inerrant word. And Father, we pray your blessings upon it as it's read, as it's heard, as it's preached, and then as it's lived out. We have been looking, Father, at your design for friendship, and not just for friendship that's based on a common interest or anything else, but a friendship that is deeply rooted uh, in a common faith in your Lord and, and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that then fleshes it itself out in mission and in dear friendship. And so we pray now as we turn to the example of Jonathan and David that you would be well pleased to reveal the type of friend that we are and the type of friend that you want us to be all for your glory and for your namesake. And all together, God's people said, Amen. Amen. You know, throughout American history, when you look at uh, friendships that have been um, somewhat unexpected, what I think we see is that there have been some rather unlikely friendships emerge. I just want to share with you some of these unlikely friendships. Uh, First of all, though they held very different political views and experienced a rather contentious and slanderous presidential race, imagine that, even back then, presidential races were difficult, our second and our third president, John Adams, and Thomas Jefferson, history tells us, maintained a very close relationship. Another sort of unlikely friendship that has emerged is between Helen Keller and Mark Twain. You likely know who both of those people are. Though, though Mark Twain was some 45 years older than Helen Keller, uh, apparently, as the story goes, that he saw his daughter in her and he sort of take a like, took a liking to her. And as history tells us, that he actually helped her become, of course, the first both deaf and blind person in the United States to earn a bachelor's degree. And a lot of that was born out of this unlikely friendship that they enjoyed. As we turn to the arts and the literary arena, we see J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis. You may be familiar with them as uh, wonderful Christian uh, authors. They were, history tells us, really good friends. And they were really good friends despite some pretty pointed theological disagreement. Uh, at one point, Lewis was uh, a devout atheist, and he was in conversation with Tolkien, who was a staunch Catholic, and as the story goes, Tolkien and his influence led C.S. Lewis uh, to faith in Christ, and his encouragement led him to write what is the uh, well-known and famous books, The Chronicles of Narnia. So if you enjoy The Chronicles of Narnia, you have J.R.R. Tolkien uh, to thank for that. 
Uh, one other uh, kind of uh, random, sort of, sort of unlikely relationship is in the arena of sports. Uh, if you're familiar with the sport of tennis at all, uh, you'll often uh, know know these two characters, Martina Navratilova and Chris Everett, were fierce competitors. In fact, over a span of 16 years, they played some 80 times. So just think about that. 16 years, they played each other 80 times, and 60 of those times that they played each other were in uh, tournament finals. In other words, with the, where the stakes are the highest. And they were fiercest competitors on the court, but uh, they were the best of friends off the court, which I think is, is kind of unlikely. And, and all of that to say is that these type of relationships, these type of un, uh, unlikely friendships, I think have a lot to teach us about friendship. This morning, we are going to see, I think, what uh, very, very uh, reasonably could be called an unlikely of friendship. We are going to take a look at what I would call the example of friendship in the Bible. And of course, we are looking at Jonathan and David. Jonathan and David and their friendship that we see uh, uh, borne out in both 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. Now, what I think we're going to see from the friendship of David and Jonathan is that the the, the, the gospel-centered uh, definition of friendship that we have been working through, I think we will see that definition sort of come to life when we look at both David and Jonathan. So I just want to remind us, when we talk about biblical friendship, what are we talking about? Well, again, in Jonathan Holmes' words, quote, Biblical friendship exists when two or more people bound together by a common faith in Jesus Christ pursue him and his kingdom with intentionality and vulnerability. He says, rather than serving as an end in and of itself, biblical friendship serves primarily to bring glory to Christ. And so as we work our way through the text and we see the friendship of Jonathan and David. I want us to keep this definition in mind because we will see this definition, I think, come to life. Uh, A great example of biblical friendship. So let's begin. Let's begin by taking a look in 1 Samuel chapter 13. We need to get to know one half of the equation of this biblical friendship. And so let's begin with Jonathan. Jonathan shows up first in the biblical text. So let's take a look at him individually first. In other words, what do we know about the person and the character of Jonathan? Well, he first shows up on the scene in 1 Samuel 13, so I I trust that you're there. And what he's doing there in verse 3, we'll just take a a short look at this verse, is, is he very characteristically, we see Jonathan picking a fight. That's what Jonathan does in the Bible oftentimes. He is picking a fight with the armies of the enemies of God. 1 Samuel 13, 13. Jonathan, the text tells us, attacked the Philistine outpost at Geba. And the Philistines heard about it. Now, if you keep on reading uh, through the rest of the chapter, you're going to find out that, uh, of course, this begins a a war, right, between God's armies and the armies of the Philistine. They end up uh, camping out on opposite sides, as is most often happened. And as the narrative advances into chapter 14, so turn with me, into chapter 14, we see Jonathan showing up on the scene again. And guess what he's doing? He's picking a fight. He's initiating the battle. Chapter 14, and we will just read some select verses here, starting in verse 1. One day, Jonathan, son of Saul, said to his young armor-bearer, Come, let us go to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he did not tell his 
father, who is the king. Look at verse 6, if you will. Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, Come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Notice these words. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Advance to, to verse 14. In that first attack... So we we see Jonathan engages, and and this is the summary. In verse 14, in that first attack, Jonathan and his armor bearer killed some 20 men in an area of about half an acre. So we've seen two times in chapter 13 and 14 where Jonathan uh, comes to the forefront in the text, and we see that he is on the move, he's initiating militarily. So what does that teach us about Jonathan? What does that show us about his character? Well, it shows us that Jonathan was zealous for God. We see that Jonathan was, was zealous for the word of God, and he was zealous for the people of God. Why is that? Well, the context is important, right? Because God had promised the land that they were in, the promised land, to the people of God. And yet we see that these uh, pagan Philistines were occupying the land. God had given the land to the nation of Israel, And yet, the Philistines were there. And so the point is simply this. Jonathan's military initiative that we see in these texts, it was not driven by pride. It was not driven by some desire for power. No, Jonathan had a deep desire to glorify God. He had a deep desire to see God's kingdom advance in the earth. Now, let me ask you a question. Does that sound like the beginning of the first half of, of, of the equation of a biblical friendship? I think it does. What, is, what does Holmes say again? He says that biblical friendship exists when, quote, when, when these people pursue God and his kingdom, right? Was Jonathan pursuing God? And his, the advancement of his kingdom here? Absolutely. And so we, we learn a, a bit about Jonathan here. He, Loved God. He wanted to advance the kingdom of God. So we have, I think, the first half of the equation here. But of course, it takes two to tango, right? It takes two to have a biblical friendship. So let's now turn to 1 Samuel chapter 16. Advance ahead in your Bibles, just a few chapters. In 1 Samuel 16, we are introduced to the person of David. We've seen a little bit about, about Jonathan. We learn quite a bit about David. We are introduced to him starting in chapter 16. Uh, God tells the prophet Samuel to go and to anoint King Saul's replacement, right? God said, I'm done with Saul. I'm choosing a new king. And so Samuel, go anoint the new king. And so he shows up at Jesse's house, if you recall, and Jesse's oldest son is brought before the prophet. And the prophet thinks in his mind, this must be the one, right? He's strong. He's tall. He's handsome. This has got to be the guy that God is choosing. But we learn something very important in verse 7. And it tells us something about David's heart because David was, of course, going to be the one that God chose. Verse 7, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance, that is the firstborn, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. Notice this. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the what, church? the heart, right? And so here we have the prophet, the oldest was brought out, and God says, no, 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 no. 
Look at what is inside of him, right? Look at his heart. And of course, who does God have in mind? Well, a few chapters earlier, God tells Saul, hey, I have rejected you. And I'm going to put in place a king that is, quote, after my own heart. So what do we learn about David? David is a man after God's own heart. Sounds like Jonathan, right? Sounds like the beginning of crackling and, and, and stuff. Sounds like the beginning of a biblical friendship. So, let's continue on as we continue to learn about David. Turn with me to chapter 17. There in chapter 17, I think we learn quite a bit about the character of David from his encounter with Goliath. So, as the story goes, I'm just going to summarize it. David enters the Israelite camp, right? And what is Goliath doing? He is taunting the the, the armies of the living God. Verse 26, chapter 17. David asked the men standing near him, What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? How does David view Goliath? David sees Goliath not as an opportunity for advancement, but he sees one who disgraces God. He sees him one who defies God himself. And because we know that David's heart beats after God, he's not going to have any of that, is he? It's even more apparent in verses 45 and 46. David is about to engage Goliath. And what does he say? David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin. But I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals. And and notice this, what's the end goal of David's engagement? And the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. So let me ask you again, friends. Does David have a heart that desires God and that wants the advancement of his kingdom in the world? Most clearly, the answer is yes. And so what do we have? It's true of Jonathan. It's true of David. And friends, you have a biblical friendship in the making. But before we look at four scenes that I think reveal to us uh, more about this budding relationship, this friendship, I, I think we need to pause and ask ourselves some questions. And the first question that I think we need to ask is that, do we form the first half of a biblical friendship like David did and like Jonathan did? In other words, is, is, is what characterized Jonathan and is what characterized David true of us? Do we have a heart that beats for God like them? Do we pursue the advancement of his kingdom on the earth? like they did? Are we willing to take risks like they did? Are we willing to take the initiative to see God's purposes come to fruition like they did? Because many of us, I think, we like the idea, we like the concept of of being in a biblical friendship like we've been talking about, but we may not be willing to be a biblical friend. See what I'm saying? You can't have a biblical friendship with another person unless you are a biblical friend yourself, right? Right? You know, uh, growing up, 
I was, I was a part of a great church with a great youth ministry. And the, the words of our youth pastor as he talked to the guys um, always stood in my mind. And, and it, it's about dating and marriage, but you'll see how it applies. He said, he said, guys, if you want a godly girl to date and to marry, then guess who you need to be? He would say, then you need to be the godly girl or the godly guy that that girl, right, is going to want. In other words, uh, what does a godly girl want? Well, she wants a godly guy. And if you're not the godly guy, then she's not going to want you. In other words, you need to become what you want. And I think that's true not only in marriage and in dating, but it's true in friendship, right? If you want to be in a truly God-honoring biblical friendship, well, then you have to be a God-honoring biblical person, right? So, let's now advance to chapter 18. 1 Samuel chapter 18, because what we see here, uh, starting in chapter 18 and, and moving really even into 2 Samuel as well, is we see four scenes, four scenes that show us about Jonathan and David's friendship. Let's work our way through these quickly. First of all, scene number one, chapter 18, verses one through four, we'll call it Jonathan's covenant, because here we see Jonathan entering into a covenant with David. So, on the heels of David's courageous and faithful defeat of Goliath, how does Jonathan respond? Jonathan sees David, and what does he do? Verse 1, after David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day on, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Notice the progression here, right? First of all, Jonathan, it says, became one with David in spirit. That is, he saw the faith and the courage and the love that David had for God and he's like, I love this guy, right? I'm drawn to him. Our hearts are united because I see in David what I see in myself, right? And so they became one in spirit. Secondly, Jonathan loved him as himself. In other words, Jonathan not only saw sort of this mirror in David, but because he did, he says, I'm going to selflessly become friends with you and I'm going to love you just like I would love myself. Third, the text says that Jonathan made a covenant with David. You could call it a friendship covenant, if you will. He says, I am going to covenant before you and before God to be the very best friend to you that I can. Now, what did that mean for Jonathan? Well, it meant something very specific. It meant that Jonathan would relinquish his rightful place as heir to the throne of Israel. That's what we see going on. He's essentially saying, God has said you would be king and not me, even though I'm the rightful heir. So I will make a covenant with you that I'm going to relinquish my rights. Now, doesn't that sound like this biblical definition we've been talking about? Because Jonathan Holmes says that, that biblical, uh, in biblical friendship, it, it, it does not serve as an end in and of itself, right? In other words, I'm not pursuing a friendship just for what I can get out of it. That's exactly what we see Jonathan doing. A classic example. Scene number two. Let's move from Jonathan's covenant to David's covenant in chapter uh, chapter 20. As we pick up, pick up in chapter 20, uh, what we see happening is that there is this ongoing conflict between Saul the king and David, the one who was promised to be king. And 
Saul uh, gets angry at David, throws the spear. You know the story. David flees. And so here in chapter 20, we see that David has fled from the castle, and he's not sure about his relationship with Saul. Where do I stand with this man who tried to kill me with a spear? That's what's going on. And in verses 1 through 4, let me just summarize here. In verses 1 through 4, David comes to Jonathan, and he's like, hey, why is your dad trying to kill me? And he's like, I don't think that your dad is going to tell you if he wants to kill me, right? That's what he says in verses 1 through 4. So in verses 5 through 11, David says, let me suggest a plan to you. Here is my plan, right? I will stay in the field nearby, and when the, the festival of the new moon comes, I should, I'm supposed to, to come to the king's presence, but I'm not going to. Now, if your dad takes it well, then we're cool. But if he doesn't, well, then he probably wants to kill me. And that's what he suggests. But notice verse 8. I want us to center in on verse 8 of chapter 20. Because David asks Jonathan to do this based upon Jonathan's prior friendship covenant. Verse 8, As for you, Jonathan says, show kindness to your servant, for you have brought him into a covenant with you before God. Next, in verses 11 through 34, we're going to summarize here. Jonathan then says, yeah, that's a pretty good plan, David, but let's do it my way. Here's a slightly different plan, kind of different details, but the same goal. I'm going to determine whether my dad wants to kill you or not. And on the heels then of David's uh, appeal to Jonathan, uh, what we see in verses 14 through 17 is Jonathan now asks David to enter into a covenant with him. Notice verse 14. But show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness as long as I live, so that I may not be killed, and do not ever cut off your kindness from my family. Not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. So Jonathan now made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May may the Lord call David's enemies to account. And Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him, because he loved him as he loved Himself. So now what, what is happening? Both men have entered into a covenant with one another, correct? Both have pledged themselves to one another. They have made a friendship agreement, if you will, which works itself out in particular ways in that relationship. But I think it, it brings us to an, a point of application, and it's simply this. Friendship is a two-way street. It's a, it's a two-way street. Biblical friendship happens when both friends agree before uh, both God and the friend to be faithful in specific ways, to demonstrate love, to love them as they love themselves. It takes two to tango. Two committed parties make a great friendship. Well, getting back to the story then. Upon hearing of David's absence, right, so the scenario plays out. David is not there, right? And upon hearing of David's absence, the king gets angry. He gets angry at David. He gets angry at his own son. He throws a spear at his own son. Not a good sign for David, right? So the next day, as the plan goes, Jonathan and David uh, meet in the field. And we get this wonderful scene. Take a look at verses 41 and 42. After the boy had gone, David got up from the south side of the stone and bowed down before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground. Then they kissed each other and they, and, and they wept together, but David wept the most. Jonathan said to David, go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord is witness between me and you and between your descendants and my descendants forever. Then David left and Jonathan went back to the town. See, what we see here is that in their minds, this is their last meeting, 
right? It has been demonstrated that Saul wanted to kill David, and so David now has to flee permanently. And so in their minds, they won't see each other ever again. It's a tender moment. It's a touching moment. It's, it's full of vulnerability, is it not? And that's one of the characteristics Holmes talks about. He says part of biblical friendship is both intentionality, which we've seen in this whole scenario, and vulnerability. This is a picture, is it not, of, of connection and of love and of, and of vulnerability. And, and they're saying goodbye. You know, for Shelley and I, when we uh, go to visit family, either in Texas or in Arkansas, or when family comes to visit us and we're at the airport and we're, you know, saying our goodbyes and we're, we're hugging each other, it, it, it is often repeated in our household, the phrase, saying goodbye is the hardest part. And what I mean by that is, is of course, the hardest part of being so far away from your loved ones is saying goodbye. Like, saying goodbye. And we know that we're going to see them again, but David and Jonathan... They thought that this was it. So let's begin to think about what we've seen here. Are, are our friendships marked with, with the kind of intentionality that we see these two men having with one another? I mean, are we intentional with our friendships? Do we ask them meaningful, significant questions? Are we intentional to spend the time necessary with them to develop the relationship? Are we intentional about including God in those conversations? Not only that, but is there vulnerability in your friendships? I mean, can you be real with them without putting sort of the the mask on? In this scene, we see both of these things on display, do we not? Not only that, but but we see that one friend is willing to, to stick his neck out, to stick her neck out for the good of the other, right? I mean, Jonathan... In coming up with this little scheme, I mean, he's really putting himself out there. His dad's crazy. His dad threw a spear at him, right? And yet he, he's willing to stand up to his father for David at great personal risk. Will you do that for your friends? Will you do that for those that you consider your best friends? You know, when I was in high school, very, very quick story, I had a pretty good friend. His name was David. He was a year older than me. And I was, like I am now, fairly mild and not very aggressive. And uh, I remember one day after basketball practice, there was a, a, a guy in David's class, a year older than me, who was, uh, he was just a bully, for lack of a better word. And so he was on the basketball team, and apparently I upset him during practice. I don't know what I did, but he was just kind of getting up in my face, and he was kind of trying to pick a fight. Now, I'm not a fighter, right? So because one, I'd probably lose, but I'm not a fighter. So he was like, I was like, just leave me alone, man. I'm going to get dressed. I'm trying to leave, you know, I'm trying to get dressed and, and get ready to class. And he's trying to pick a fight, you know, um, and, and I just leave. I just, I leave the locker room. Uh, I was told about 30 minutes later that my good friend David started to stand up for me and he started to talk with Jeff. And I think there was a fight that ensued and I think Jeff got beat down, but and I'm not advocating violence or anything like that. But, but I so much appreciated that I, I had a friend and he was willing to st- to stand up for me. He was willing to put his neck out there. That's what, that's what we see Jonathan doing. Well, let's look at a third scene. Take a look at chapter 23. We're moving along in the narrative. Chapter 23, specifically verses 15 through 18. We'll call it Jonathan's encouragement. Here in this scene, we see David is living as an exile. He's on the run from King Saul. He's very discouraged. Life is hard for him. What do friends do when their uh, best friend or when their friend is, is discouraged? Well, 
Take a look at verse 15. <clears throat> While David was at Horish in the, in the desert of Ziph, he learned that Saul had come out to take his life. And Saul's son, Jonathan, went to David at Horish and helped him find strength in God. Don't be afraid, he said. My, fa- my father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel and I will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. Verse 18, the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. Then Jonathan went home, but David remained at Horish. What do friends do when uh, their friend is in need? When they're struggling, when they're depressed, when their hard times come upon them? They come alongside them, even at great cost and effort, to encourage them, number one, and to offer them truth right? Jonathan was speaking the truth to David. And that's what friends do. They speak the truth in love and they uplift their friends. And this is the last time in scripture that these two friends interacted. Because we turn now to the fourth scene, I'll call it David's lament, into Second Samuel. So if you're in first, turn to second. Second Samuel chapter one, we see the final um, revelation, if you will, uh, of this great friendship. There in verses 25 and 26, we see that David learns both of King Saul's death and of his beloved friends, Jonathan's death in battle. They both died in battle. And in chapter 1, David writes this lament song for them. Notice specifically what he says about Jonathan in verse 25. How the mighty have fallen in battle. Jonathan lies slain on your heights. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. In remembering his friendship with Jonathan, David portrays Jonathan's friendship as better than that of of a woman or a wife. Often this word love here is actually even translated friendship. It's the covenantal commitment that these men made to one another um, in friendship that is being spoken of. And so David remembers his, his, this, this friendship, this, this unity of heart and mind that he enjoyed with this, this friend of his. And he says, you know what? Some married couples aren't even that united because we loved God and we loved one another so deeply. So, friends, as we've seen a wonderful example of friendship here uh, with David and, and Jonathan, there's much to learn. But not only is there much to learn from their example, but there is one other example of friendship in the Bible that I want us to consider. And of course, it's the example of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. While these men were a good example, of course, Jesus is the best example of friendship we have. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 19, take a look on the screen behind me. Jesus is called, even by his detractors, a friend of sinners. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, so this is what people were saying. He's a glutton, he's a drunkard, and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And then Jesus adds, but wisdom is proved right by her deeds. Friends, he was no glutton, he was no drunkard, but you know what? They pegged him right when they called him a friend of sinners. Aren't you glad that Jesus is called a friend of sinners? Because guess what this church is filled with? 
sinners, right? And if Jesus wasn't a friend of sinners, he could not be your friend. And he could not be my friend. But praise God, he is a friend of sinners. He associates with people who fall short of God's standard, which is perfect obedience before him. Not only is he called a friend of sinners, but in John chapter 15, verse 13, we learn how Jesus demonstrates his friendship to us. Greater love has no one than this, Jesus said, that one lay down his life for his what? For his friends, right? Jesus laid down his life for those he considered his friends. That is, he died on the cross for our sins, taking our guilt and our shame so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be set free, so that we could be reconciled to God. See, friends, if you want to be a biblical friend like we've been talking about for the past six weeks, then it starts with becoming friends with God. It begins with receiving the friendship of Jesus that he so freely offers. He lived the perfect life that you could not live, that God requires. He died the death that you deserved. And he took your punishment and your guilt on the cross. And he rose again on the third day because he wants to be a friend to you. And he wants you to be a friend with God. And when you have that interaction, when you come to that place, then guess what? Your sins are forgiven and you become, you, God starts to transform you so that you can then be the type of friend that we see here in the scriptures. So friends, if you've not received this gift, if you've not become friends with God through personal faith in Jesus, I'm going to pray and have a few moments of prayer and reflection to contemplate and to prepare for communion, which you see before us, right? We see the bread is is broken. It symbolizes his body being broken for us. And we see uh, uh, the, the wine, the juice, his blood was was shed for us, was, was poured out on our behalf. And we're going to remember and rejoice in that here in just a few moments. If you are a believer in Christ, the table is open. Come, examine yourself, Repent, confess your sins, thank him for what he has done for you. But friends, if you are not, if you know for sure that you are not friends with God through faith in Christ, then let's pray. Pray with me now. I will lead you in a prayer to receive Christ. And then we'll have a few moments to prepare for the table. Let's pray together. Father,